You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Professor David Kirk Philp, along with Dr. Esteban Marconi. And we are going to have a tremendous, tremendous show for you today. No guest today, Marconi. No guest. Oh, my goodness gracious. It could be crazy, but we should give thanks before we do anything else, should we not? Okay. Let us give thanks to the folks at Bandai Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place for you to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. Which we always suggest and always demand. Yes. We should mention Managing Your Band, 7th edition. Still very out. Good. Yes. Still relevant. Still makes sense. Very, I read it this morning, honestly. The content is excellent. So that's out. So people go, go ahead and buy it. I recommend it. Seriously. Highly <laughs> recommended. And it comes highly recommended by the two authors. So that's yes, a true exactly. story. And then we uh, want to also mention that the music business program basically started and run for decades by Dr. Stephen Marconi, still ranked as one of the best in the universe by Billboard magazine, a trade magazine that everybody in the music business knows what it is and respects it. All right. So uh, we decided that we were going to talk a little bit about what um, constantly comes up in classrooms that students have trouble understanding. And as uh, my colleagues offered me earlier, a few days ago, that uh, in 35 years of teaching, what did I have on the plate that I could almost be assured would be asked at each new class? Am I correct? Yes, exactly. Was there, was there one thing that for no matter what, every year? Several things. <laughs> I just happened to jot down nine of them. And of course, um, I must look back 35 years in the early 70s when I got off the road and started teaching this. There were no textbooks. There was no managing a band. There was very little out there. And we were all really basically going by the seat of our pants because we were told as we were on the road or I was on Epic Records, 
to just play the music, don't worry about anything else. And when uh, I realized I was getting in this as an education tool for musicians, that's exactly what I wanted it to be. I thought that musicians could and should know more about their own business and be able to make uh, good and educated decisions. So I think uh, in thinking back, what I put up on the board the first day of class uh, is, and I might add that my colleague was in this very classroom in the early 90s, correct? Late 80s, early 90s. Yes. Right. He's dating himself now. Yes. Literally. I just, <laughs> I love me very much. Right. So one of the first things I put up on the top of the board, I can almost see myself doing it now, is that 100% of nothing equals nothing. Nothing. And that this business is a, a very much a fragmented business and you have to give part of it away or sign some part of it away in order to get or reap the benefits that you should get. So the, I can see the eyes bulging a little bit in the first day that they're trying to figure out what 100% of nothing really is. And then they come up with the conclusion that, well, we'll never be doing 100% of anything. And that's very true. So that's one thing that comes up all the time is to have them understand from the outset that this is a business of fragmentation and that there are many pieces of the pie and one individual does not do normally everything for the artist. And I believe actually, even if they say they do, they really don't um, because it's that complicated of a business today. So one of the first things that I think uh, we get confusion with, and I think Dave certainly chime in, is that um, the difference between the members of the artist's team, especially the, um, the agent versus the manager. And when you listen to late night talk show, many times the movie stars and the TV stars use those words interchangeably. They'll say, oh, my agent did this, uh, or my manager did that. And I think in some cases, they don't really know what the difference is either. So we usually have to clarify that very quickly. And I'm sure you'll agree with me when the students come in your office, they're in office hours and they say, I got a band and uh, we're working a lot and we're really, and we need a manager. And I think the first question I always said is, well, why do you need a manager? And after we flush it out, it's because they want more gigs. Well, that's not the manager's job. The manager's job is not to get the gigs. Basically, they accept the gigs. And it's the agent, or what we should call the booking agent, is the person who gets the gigs. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, at, at the DIY indie level, a lot of times if it's a real baby band that wants a manager and they're only selling 10 tickets for a good gig and that's just their friends or their all their moms or whatever, right? Um, they, they don't need a manager. They, they're not going to get a booking agent either right. because there's no, there's nothing. When you go back to 100% of nothing is nothing, they have 100% of everything, but there's no money coming in. So no agent wants to book them at that point because there's an agent earns 10% commission 
and 10% of nothing is nothing also. So a, a regular booking agent won't do that. And then a manager in the early stages, very early stages, they might get a manager who will do some gig booking yes. that is technically illegal in like New York City and LA but um, or California. But um, a lot of times in the very early side, managers book gigs. And then eventually what they all want is the agent come up to come on board and the agent do all the gig booking and the tour routing and all that. And then the manager does what they do, which is manages. Correct. Yes. And it's really a, a helper of the band rather than really a manager. I mean, it calls those managers, but they do everything, including maybe get some roadies and help with the roadies. I mean, many times managers become managers because they were roadies or they were friends of the band in the beginning. And they just started to hang out and the band got so fed up with doing the paperwork that they turned around and said, well, you do it. Right. And they become a, a manager. The second thing that goes in with that is that the um, qualifications for a manager are never listed anywhere. There really is no qualification on paper to become a manager. Who becomes a manager? Well, they're hip or they're into the band or they might have an interest in the, the business. Uh, but normally it's not someone, well, I went to business school and I've got an MBA and uh, I can do marketing and I can do management and I can do finance and so on and so forth. So that there, is, there are no really qualifications to become a manager. And what you alluded to is, of course, as a booking agent, you need to be licensed by the state in which you are doing work from, you, because you are more or less an employment agency uh, in the simplest terms. And that is, um, that's the qualification that's needed as an, as an agent. And are there managers that are our agents? Legally, uh, yes, there certainly are that have done and re you know done the homework and, and have their license to become an agent. So we clear that up pretty early. And then as we move through the revenue streams, I think the one thing that we always have to sort of decipher on the board, and that is the songwriter publisher splits, which I think students have a tough time understanding that 100% of 50% mm -hmm. and 100% don't look at it as 200%, but there are books that show it as 200%. So we always have to clarify what the publisher is due and what the um, songwriter is due and then the types of deals that there are. What's interesting though, um... When you talk about 200% versus 100%, um, we haven't talked about the performance rights organizations, but they're the two big ones that most of our listeners are going to be involved with are ASCAP or BMI. BMI looks at a song as 200%. Yes. And 100% for the publisher, 100% for the songwriter. ASCAP looks at it as 100% total, and then they basically split that 50-50. Right. right. And I've always taught it as 100% total. Mm -hmm. You yeah. understand what this 200 it can't be 200 percent. It's either 100 percent or it's less. <laughs> They're looking at the, the yeah. yeah. Yes. And then well, BMI is looking at 200 percent 
of the composite, sorry, two sides of the composition yes. and each side has 100%. So that it just makes it even more uh, screwed up, you know? Yes. And then when you would talk about, for instance, if you're gonna do an administration deal and the administration deals are usually 25%, roughly. Mm -hmm. 25% of what? Right. Of the 100, of the 50, of the 100, of the half of the 200, you know, so it becomes very complicated and I don't blame them for not understanding that principle. Uh, just because of the confusion of the, you know, the math. Right. The musicians love to say that I'm terrible at math. Well, many times, if you're a good music theory person, you're an excellent at math, um, an excellent mathematician. So that's uh, another thing that usually comes up. And then we usually will get into songwriting credits and who on a copyright form gets to be the songwriter? And is the copyright office going to make any judgment on who the songwriters are? And what percentage of the song did they write? And the answer to that is no. The copyright office is just a paper handler that's going to take for word what's on the copyright registration form and that a songwriter can be, you know, can be 1% of the song and it can be 99% or it can be 100% of the song. So we always have to make that uh, understanding. And then we roll into the idea of who takes songwriting credits. And this is where I usually, unfortunately, still beat down on Madge or Madonna. And I use her as an example of someone who might take songwriting credit and hasn't written the song. And how can that be? They say, well, the, that can't be, I wrote the song. And the business is as such that we're looking to get the biggest bang out of the buck we can get. So if Madonna wants to record the song, she knows that for every spin on radio as it was and so on that because she sang the song in america uh and a few other countries she doesn't get one nickel whether it spins a thousand times an hour or zero times an hour so she wants to make her money and the no the way she knows she makes her money is because songwriters do receive credit and revenue from every performance of that song. So consequently, with all the power, the star who's recording the song might just ask or tell that they're gonna become a songwriter on the song. And then many times it's up to the songwriter, the real songwriter, to negotiate what percentage of the song Madonna is willing to give them as a songwriter, correct? Yes. Um, some people call that the artist tax, ah. where the artist will come in and they will say, um, yes, I'll do this song, but in exchange for me performing this song, I get 5% or 10% songwriter's credit. And that's where the songwriter 
goes back to day one class with Dr. Esteban Marconi and remembers that board that said 100% of nothing is nothing, but 90% of something is 90%. So uh, a lot of those artists will then say yes to this artist tax and let the artist become a songwriter, air quotes, on that song because now the song will be successful. Now that songwriter will be known. Um, and again, what they're losing out is a, a bummer, but it's also a net gain for them because otherwise maybe nobody would ever record the song or they could put out the song themselves, but it would never have the same effect and, and uh, revenue generation ability that it would had it not been for getting that name artist to record on it. Correct. Correct. And is this, would you say that this is a very much a norm in the business today? Totally. Yes. Totally. Especially, yeah. I mean, you look, um, the Jonas Brothers had an album that came out. And I remember I seeing, um, you know, we're recording this at the end of May in 2023. They have a new album coming out. And a um, month ago or something, I think they had a single that had just come out. And I saw that one of the songwriters on the single just got a publishing deal. And it said he that this guy was a songwriter on that track. So I went to that track and there were, I think, eight different songwriters on that song, including a couple of the Jonas Brothers. Then fast forward to about three weeks later, my one of my kids is playing a new a portion of a new Jonas Brothers song in the car. And I said, go to the song credits. Tell me how many writers are on that song. And she looked. There were 10 writers on that song, including uh -huh. Jonas Brothers. So right. I'm not saying the Jonas Brothers did not have anything to do with that track, but I'm also saying that pop, so pop songwriting today is really songwriting by committee. And you're getting the original songwriters, you're getting the artists, you're getting uh, a producer on there as well. So you're getting a lot of people. Uh, so they're all splitting up that 100% into tiny, tiny increments. Right. And speaking of committees, there are such things as writer's weekends, aren't there, that occur? Like kids. Where these, yes, where these writers go into a room and they are writing, let's say, for star A. I won't, I won't mention any names. And then the, uh, they sort of put by committee a song together. And maybe there's a room that's doing just bridges and a room that's doing just verses and choruses and so on. And then the star will come in and decide what they want their name to be on, mm -hmm. uh, which to me is blasphemy. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it really is, you right. know, what a business, you know. Yeah, that was um, the book that we read, The yes. Song Machine right? Not by John, some can't remember yes. his last name. Um, but yeah, he talked. He talked about that. Uh, it was a Rihanna songwriting camp, and Rihanna right. would go from room to room, and maybe she would put songs together, or maybe she would just. But yeah, she would get her name on that yeah. as well. Yeah, which is again, a hundred percent of nothing, nothing. And many of these writers, uh, it's totally negotiable at those camps, whether they get one percent or they get zero percent, or they get a fee for doing it, you know, and call themselves, I'm a, I'm a verse writer. <laughs> I get a hundred dollars an hour for writing verses. Yeah, they're trying, oh, we had a class a year ago and we had Jamie 
uh, Kanelski, who's a VP of creative for Cobalt, brought mm -hmm. in some people. And they were some songwriters and um, and one or two people who manage songwriters. Because when you talk about artist management, we always think of somebody manages, whether it's um, Ariana Grande or, you know, the, the Morgan Wallen, you know, somebody on stage. But some uh, people just manage producers. Some people just manage engineers. Some people just manage songwriters and not people who will ever go on the stage. And he was, and this guy managed uh, songwriters and he was talking about um, some songwriters are trying to get it where kind of what you just said, they'll go to these camps, but they need to get paid a flat fee in addition to their splits um, because otherwise they're just writing for spec and it is pure. Yeah. Oh, here's a good example. So Tima likes music. This one artist I managed, she blew up two and a half years ago, three years ago, she blew up for a little bit for a minute on Instagram. All these people came, record with me, record with me, produce with me. So there's this one guy in England who's a producer who had done some stuff. And I got on the phone with him, took forever for him to talk to me on the phone. Finally talked to me on the phone. I was trying to talk song splits with him. I said, before Tima does this work for you, uh, doing this production work, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about the song split. He goes, in this world, it is all spec. We're all just putting stuff together and hoping that an artist gets it. Then we end up talking about the song split at that point, because the art, like we said, the artist wants some, I get mine, she'll get hers. Somebody else will pop in and get theirs. Um, so it, it's very different from the tradition of you're in Nashville, two people go into a room automatically. It's just understood they're splitting that, whatever they come up with 50, yeah. 50. Right. It doesn't work yeah. like that necessarily. Um, but it is great to communicate at the end of a session where everybody is and somebody to take notes and everybody just said, kind of agree to it because yeah, yeah. you're going to get into some big fights later on. Right. So we have a band and we're on a major label, which is unheard of today, but we're on a major label and the band breaks up, but the guitar player wants to keep the name of the band <laughs> and wants to possibly continually recording for that major label. And what students usually don't understand is if a person in the band continues with that label and the band happens to owe the, owe the label money that they could be liable for the entire uh, bill the entire um, debt that the band may have for uh, with that label. The unrecouped advances. What we call unrecouped. Thank you. I was right. looking for that word and I couldn't come up with it. So consequently, we usually get the first feedback is why shouldn't they, if there's six people in the band, they should just be responsible for the sixth, one sixth of it. And the answer to that is when you sign a record contract with a major label, you sign individually and collectively so that you are not only responsible for the individual part, but you are responsible for the collective part as well. And that I think uh, normally causes some confusion. Yeah, I don't think at the time when, usually when a band is signing any sort of deal, they're assuming they're going to be together for a while and they're right. assuming they're going to make a lot of money right. and they aren't thinking 
worst case scenario is we break up after album number one because we don't really get along that well. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's a thing. That's why you see a band break up. And then when the lead person puts out their solo album, it's on the same label because they're still technically signed to that label. Mm-hmm. But the yeah, the good thing about the unrecoup part is nobody in the band ever needs to write a check back to the label. Right. And if a band collectively owes a hundred thousand dollars to a record label, the band never needs to get out their checkbook, never have the to personal pay. checkbook, and write. And but with a publishing deal, that that uh, money does eventually have to be paid, either earned back, right, and you're on that pub, you're on that publisher forever, or you need another publisher to pay off the first publisher to get you out of that deal. But of course, now you're in debt to the new publisher. You're unrecouped to the new publisher, so. It works for merch deals too, usually. Mm, Yeah. Same thing, they're not unrecoupable. So consequently, what happens is that the um, person continues and they want to use the name. They find out that the name that they were under is now being used by another band. So they figure that's it, that we, I lost it. I was supposed to, uh, and I didn't. Hmm. And the uh, way it works normally is that the name rights go to the first use person or band and the continuous use person. And in some cases like the Beatles or Elvis Presley, there's a residual use as well. But that just because you have this big band that came in and they're now the ballpoint bananas, doesn't mean that you have to give up ballpoint bananas. And you have to show that you were the first to use in a certain territory and that you had basically continuous use of this name uh, or logo or whatever. I'm saying that uh, if you, if a band comes in and they start using that name, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are out of it. That if you can prove that you were the first to use in a territory and you had basically continuous use, that you might be, you might be okay, that you might still be able to use that name. Yeah, and there's also the idea of the band agreement as well. Right. Where if everybody wants to protect themselves, they have a band agreement and it states clearly in there who owns the name. If it's just a, an LLC, a, a corporation that owns the name, then the corporation owns the name. And there could be come a time when the corporation does not have any members of the original band. It, so it could get kind of crazy. There are certain bands, I don't know if it's the Temptations, Four Tops, there are um, bands that are still out there doing things uh, that only has maybe one original member of the band left or none. And there are other people out there. Sam and Dave could be, I think that's a very good example. And then neither of them, uh, Dave Prater or Sam, I lost it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't in it and it's still going around like that. So it's a very important aspect of it, of um, just being an entertainer. However, don't assume just because someone's got a bigger size shoe that they can come in and just take over. 
Right. Yeah. Um, and then you're also talking eventually in terms of the, the, the trademark, you know, if it's, if you're the ballpoint bananas, uh, and you have a, a, a certain look like on your merch and you're using ballpoint bananas on your merch and in your website and all these things, you can get a trade. That would be one thing as soon as you have some money is to get a trademark on the ballpoint bananas. But I, I learned this from our friend Aaron Van Dyne not too long ago, because he was talking about the band Kiss, who he is their business manager, how he is constantly keeping up with, um, with the trademarks in each country around the world because they last and then they eventually don't last and you have to reapply and get another uh i guess re yeah. re sign and get that trade <laughs> yeah to keep that trademark um which i didn't realize i thought you got one and it was it's not worldwide so right. there's there's use that you're using it worldwide but you may not necessarily have a trademark trademark all over the world so that's a very very important thing right to do but there's yeah I actually was in Mexico City one time driving to the airport. I told Aaron this, and I passed a, passed a nightclub on the road, and the name of the nightclub was Kiss, and they had the exact logo. Right. Exact Kiss logo. Mm -hmm. So I was asking if, if Gene knew about this one, and uh, he just laughed because there's thousands all, yeah. over, all over the world that, that uh, do this. Yes. Okay, so let's move on to um, the live area. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one that we, um, it's, it's constantly changing in terms of the information we give because I think the, the business is constantly changing in terms of who gets what out of a ticket, mm -hmm. out of the sale of a ticket. And I brought up just when I made my notes this morning that um, that the students are usually not aware of a band might participate in the secondary markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and they might participate in the um, concession stands and so on. So what's your take on that? First, um, the take is most students don't realize that when they get mad at Ticketmaster, a lot of their anger should also go to the to the artist because in a ticket sale, the artist is getting the biggest chunk, the biggest percentage of that. There are some venues specifically that will throw a venue charge on there that sometimes can be more than $2. It used to be like a dollar or $2. Right. Now it's getting up there the idea is those venues are supposed to use that sometimes to fix up the venues to clean the rugs or paint the outside or something but some are using that as another means of just as a revenue. way to make revenue right um but explain what the secondary market is for some who who go i i heard that i don't exactly know what that is though well the secondary market is your stub hubs and your uh, geek seats and all of those secondary markets that are after Ticketmaster, even though Ticketmaster owns one of them, I can't know, I'm drawing a blank. But the idea is that um, people present and then they put them on the secondary market to resell them. And the point being that if it's a hot ticket or a band that they know is just uh, getting more and more steam, and by the time 
November comes along, the ticket is going to be extremely hot. And they try to get uh, revenue out of that. And little, I think people know that sometimes the band buys blocks of tickets and sells them on the secondary market. Right. And um, well, one thing to take one step back, one thing I heard in a good interview with Michael Rapino recently, ah. who, who runs Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Uh, they're both number one in what they do. Live Nation's number one promoter, Ticketmaster's the number one ticket seller. And his whole point about, because he hates the secondary market too, in general, because he's a primary seller of tickets. Mm -hmm. And he would rather, basically, he says the secondary market exists because consumers are willing to pay more for the price of a ticket. Mm -hmm. His point then is why do artists underprice their tickets? And that's why Ticketmaster uh, is doing a lot more with uh, dynamic pricing, which basically right. is an algorithm determines, uh, understands the supply and demand of a particular ticket. And the greater demand, the higher the price, because people are willing to pay it. And when they reach this max threshold, the price will stop rising. And this is the primary sale, or maybe go down a bit when they it realizes it's gone too too high. Mm -hmm. That's that's the first thing is just uh, and Springsteen got in trouble, not in trouble, but got yelled at for his current tour because he decided I'm gonna raise the price of all my tickets because I know a lot of people will spend a thousand dollars to be in the front row to see my shows. I'm going to, instead of just charging a hundred bucks to be the blue collar guy and letting the secondary market sell it for a thousand, I'm going to sell it for a thousand and me and the band, we're going to make our percentage of that ticket. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they did. Springsteen got a lot of uh, criticism for that. And one thing Michael Rapino said was, why can you sell a front row ticket to a playoff game at the NBA, for example, NBA finals, and you can sell for $5,000 and nobody will complain. Springsteen sells a front row ticket, same, uh, same idea of scarcity. He's only gonna be in this venue, in this town twice in the next five years, maybe. Why can he not charge that? And he said the, the NBA and sports have done a really good job of marketing the idea that high price tickets are okay because people will pay them. But in music, that's been sort of a negative. Mm -hmm. And so that has led to the establishment of this secondary market. There are um, some artists who um, <clears throat> have decided, I'm just going to release, like you said, tickets on the secondary market, but they're not doing it um, without the promoter and the ticketing company knowing this. It's everybody's doing it together. The, the artists are just going and buying hundred tickets and then selling them somewhere else. This is all mm -hmm. part of the arrangement from day one when the agent is putting together, maybe the agent manager putting this deal together with the promoter in the first place. Right. So the I think what we're saying is the artist isn't necessarily lily white clean no. on any of this. And of course, Springsteen said that why should the scalpers earn this money? And I one time years and years and years ago, in the 90s, I asked John Scher, who determines the price of the ticket? And he said, in actuality, when it, by the time of the show, it's the scalper. Hmm. And I stopped and I said, you know, this was in the early 90s. Uh, he was part of Polygram Diversified 
entertainment, yeah. whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. diversified and, entertainment, yes. And um, the idea being, of course, Bruce is right. The scalper shouldn't um, take the money out of the band's mouth. And it's a very, very difficult tightrope to walk uh, for an artist. And the artist, uh, you know, in a long run, the artist should just get what they deserve. I mean, you know, what, what, what the market bears is what the artist should collect, not the scalpers. And as far as the, any sporting event, um, it's a difficult question. I don't know if Rapino really answered it correctly. Yes, they did well in marketing, but there's also, I think the idea of there's just such a small limited number of seats mm -hmm. in an arena or whatever. And that, uh, again, getting back to supply and demand, it's what the uh, demand requires for that. I think, you know, I still go back to the idea of don't pay it. Just don't pay it. Who? If, you know, if, if it's costing you now 200 bucks to go to a Yankee game, oh. don't go. It won't be 200 bucks anymore. Mm -hmm. When, you know, when Joe DiMaggio was, he was living in the neighborhood, you know, Duke Schneider was living in the neighborhood and all of those people. And uh, consequently, that's why ticket sales were not what they, uh, ticket prices not what they are today. But there's no reason if we're going to pay those tickets, there's no reason why the ball players should not take part in it. And that's why they have zillion dollar contracts. <laughs> it's the same thing, same principle here for this. But uh, understandably, it's a very, there's a, now several good books out on the whole idea of um, entertainment business and ticketing. And the, um, the idea that the artist just should get this percentage or whatever the deal is, uh, is not, I don't think is right as well because the artist should demand and get the biggest piece of the pie. And, and people should also understand, like think about, and sometimes artists will get this, they, uh, younger artists are gonna go to play at a venue and they're just doing their deal isn't the Beyonce deal where they're getting a guaranteed $130 million for their tour. Instead, they're playing a venue, it's, we'll call it a, a $10 ticket and they're splitting it with the venue 80-20, 70-30, the artist is getting 70% of that ticket. So a $10 ticket for everybody who comes in, the artist is getting seven bucks, the venue is getting $3. The venue is not making their money from the ticket sale. You go all the way up, the venue is not making that much money from tickets. The venue is making its money from all the ancillary things, such as, um, as, as our friend Harvey Leeds always says, they're in the beer business. Alcohol, the markup, which is the difference between what the venue pays for their alcohol or their drinks and what they sell it for is so huge that the venues make money from, from all the drinking that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, maybe food, but a lot of it is that. And then when you get the bigger venues you're talking about, they're making their money from parking, from, uh, from sponsorships, mm -hmm. uh, from the concessions, which is, you know, the food and drink and that kind of thing, and a little something from tickets. 
but uh, in general, it's they're making their money from the other things. So if you're an independent concert promoter and you don't own any venues, it's really hard to make much money unless you have this you have this really good venue and you can sell 300 tickets and you can sell out and maybe you can sell get part of the bar or something like that. But it, right. it's it's very hard to make money as an independent concert promoter if you're not earning any of that bar revenue. And most of them are not if they don't own the bar. Correct. And that's, that's what brings um, Ticketmaster, excuse me, Live Nation to either own or lease mm -hmm. different venues. And AEG as well, correct. Yeah, AEG probably I think owns more than, more venues than Live Nation. Uh, because they're in the sporting business more than Live Nation is. But yeah. And one other thing I did um, jot down, and I don't know if I'm duplicating what you did, mm -hmm. uh, is the story we've had since probably the last 10 years now, is that how come the artists make so little money from streaming? Uh-huh. And why am I getting just this little piece of the, uh, I, I don't make anything. Look at my check. It's $2.21 for the last quarter. And uh, we do, and of course you do as well, have to go through the different percentages that are the, sort of the norm for the Spotify's and so on. But that still doesn't really actually satisfy the person. And I, I bike with several attorneys actually every week, and they're always talking, asking me questions like this. And the uh, simple answer is that the band gets paid from the record company, and the record company has a deal, a contract with the band. So if the band or the artist is doing has a ten percent contract, and the revenue for uh, the record company is 45 cents for the spin, then the artist would be getting 4.5 cents. So right. how do you do with that in class now? I actually show them. Uh, well, first thing, a lot of them don't understand that when a song streams on Spotify, it generates three royalties. It generates the sound recording royalty. And if you're a DIY artist, uh, artist, that's all. That all goes to you if you upload through DistroKid or mm -hmm. uh, CD Baby or TuneCore or Ditto or anything like that. You get all that money. One thing, then it generates a mechanical royalty. So if you are the songwriter, you can collect a royalty from that, and you go to a place called the MLC, Mechanical Licensing Collective, and in the United States they collect these mechanical royalties. It's a uh, songwriting slash publishing royalty that that is generated when a song streams or is sold uh, or downloaded. Uh, they collect that specifically from the DSPs, from Spotify, Amazon. It's free to join, and you can earn some revenue from that. Again, it's, it's per small percentages of a penny, but it adds up over streams. If you have no streams, then you're not going to get any money. But if you have some streams, that's a place to go. And then your performance rights organization, BMI, ASCAP, uh, or Global Music Rights, or CSAC, CSAC um, they're collecting a public performance royalty as well. And that's the third revenue stream that comes out of a song stream. Mm -hmm. So if you're 
ducks are all in a row and you're signed up with your pro and you're signed up with the MLC and your and uh, distro kid is paying you when they pay you. Um, and you've written you can, a song. Pardon me. And you've written this, if you've written the song and you're a self-published writer, meaning you just, I'm just an indie artist and I'm just doing all this by myself. I don't have any record company and I don't have anybody publishing for me. If you keep do all those things on your own, you'll get all the money that is due for that song. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, but why is it so little? It's just whomever created the system of streaming and one stream equals a percentage of a penny. And it was, I think it was, um, I don't mean an illegal, an Ill in illegal sense, but like it was a, a collusion between, uh, we'll call it Spotify and uh, all the major labels. And they figured out this was the way for this system to work. What was in it for the labels uh, initially was they got big advances from Spotify and they also got ownership in the company. Mm -hmm. So for a long time that it didn't matter that what was generated was a percentage of a penny per stream for them as the sound recording owners, because they were sitting on equity in this company that was getting bigger and bigger. And they had also gotten those big advances that they not that they did not necessarily have to share with the artists. So, right. um, but now you're you're in a system where a lot more artists are just going through DistroKid or they're going through United Masters or they're doing something and they are not going through the major label system. And the major labels are now, they're starting to say a little bit more, you're starting to see more headlines um, that it doesn't make sense for streams for, for uh, Ed Sheeran to get 0.003 cents per stream, yet Dave Philp um, also gets 0.003 cents per stream. That's not right. Ed Sheeran should get more. You know, and he's saying that because he runs a major label and Ed Sheeran just happens to be on his major label and they believe. So you're going to start seeing that this this inequity that already exists. You're going to see a lot more talk probably right. of people saying, well, big known famous artists that that top, you know, one, the point one percent of one percent who are the very top, they should get more per stream than other people. And mm -hmm. um because it's just a system that was created and that's why, and that's kind of what I say. And probably about two minutes ago, most people, their eyes glazed over. And we should point out that um, out of every dollar, Spotify gets right off the top about 30 cents. Yes, which goes back to iTunes because when iTunes, when you would buy a song from exactly. iTunes, um, there again, it was a 99 cent stream. So the margin for iTunes, what iTunes earns, iTunes slash Apple, they were getting 30%, basically 30 cents, and the labels were getting 70%. So they kept that margin right. uh, model, and they used that for streaming as well. Right. Okay. couple minutes left. What do you got? Um, my one thing, and we actually, it's funny because we did cover a, a number of these things. I wanted to bring up something just that goes back to we talked about the song, uh, the sound recording. If you're an indie artist, you and you're also you wrote the song, and somebody comes to you and they want to put your song in a movie, and mm. they say, and they say, here's a thousand dollars to put the song in my movie. You need to go and understand as the artist that there are two sides, to, two parts of that song. There's the sound recording, but there's also the underlying composition. And yes. does that thousand dollars cover both 
parts, both sides of the song? Or is that $1,000 just for the sound recording and this person is looking for who owns the underlying composition? So that 1,000 could easily become 2,000 for you if you know what you're talking about. And so that's why it's really important in a sync deal to understand that anytime you see a song, you watch a movie and you hear a song that you really like or that you know, that film company, their people had to go to the owner of the sound recording and get permission and cut a deal. Then they also had to go to the music publisher who or publishers, depending upon how many songwriters were on it, and get their permission. And then they had to pay for all of those uses. And the sound recording, if that cost $5,000 for the sound recording, the publisher or publishers would also get $5,000 because it's a thing called Most Favored Nations. And both both parts of the song, both sides, would get this equal amount. So it's important for uh, students and, and artists and even people in the business to understand that you need two permissions when you want to put a song in a film or in a TV commercial. Very good, right. And that is a synchronization license. And most people kind of get it, but then they don't. And I guess uh, we could talk about sampling, too, at this point, too, because it's the same mm -hmm. principle. Exact uh, same thing. There's an underlying song, and then there is, if you're going to use the master recording, there's the master recording as well. And there are people at labels, and this is where it's really interesting, too. There are people at labels who will go and they will license, let's say they, they put, let's say I'm making this up, you're 300 Entertainment, and you have an artist and you're putting something out by that artist. And they and uh, you're putting out something out by that artist, and it has a sample in it. The label may go, okay, we need to get permission from this other label to put this song in. That person getting the permission might not realize, oh, I also have to find out who the publishers are and yes. get their permission too. And right. they don't do that. And we have a friend, Todd Shefflin, who now works for TikTok, but he was working for uh, a publisher called Missing Peace, and when he joined that company. One thing he was doing, he was going and he was finding all these samples and he was finding that nobody had ever licensed the, yeah. this, the music composition, the music publishing for these samples. And so he went and he was able to get a lot of money for them. Right. Uh, the, the idea too there is sometimes somebody thinks they own it and they don't. Mm -hmm. um, because either paperwork or whatever happened and they really don't own it. And we have another good friend, uh, Jenny Peters, who's done this for 30 years when sampling began, and she clears samples. Mm -hmm. uh, and she'll tell you that, you know, that's a daily routine, that it's not, <laughs> people think they own something, they really don't. Yes. All right, yeah. I think we, uh, we should put out a seminar. <laughs> we should. New music, a new, new music seminar. That's right, we'll do it. Uh every year and we'll have it run for 365 days and it'll be fabulous. That's right. We'll call it Mark music. Silverman will come and see us. Yes. But this was great, Dr. Esteban Marconi, to have yes, you. Yes, it worked on. out better than I anticipated actually, which is good. I knew it would be great because you were part of it. And I knew as the leading educator of the music business <laughs> in the United States of America for decades, it would be fabulous to have you talk about these right. things. Okay, let's wrap it up. <laughs> so at the end of every show, do you know what we say at the end of every show, Dr. Yes, Stima? I do. I we, do. Say, we say, adios! Adios, adios, adios.
Sexy kind of 